This week, together with the past two uh, sermons on Jeremiah, form a kind of trilogy. A little bit like the letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, at the end of it he says, so these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. I want to deal with the question of hope today in terms of Jeremiah's life and what it looks like. So I want to read, to begin with, from chapter 32. And it's a few verses here and there, verse 9 and 10, verse 15 to 17, 24 to 27, and then 42 onwards, just to give you an idea of the um, process of buying a field that takes place for Jeremiah. 9.10 says, I bought the field which was at Anathoth from Hanamal, my uncle's son, and I weighed out the silver for him, 17 shekels of silver. And I signed and sealed the deed and called in witnesses and weighed out the silver on the scales. Verse 15, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall be brought again in this land. After I had given the deed of the purchase to Baruch, son of Nerea, then I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heaven and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. And then to verse 24. Look, the siege mounds have reached the city and they're going to take it. And the city is given to the hand of the Babylonians who fight against it because of the sword, the famine and the pestilence. Certainly wasn't COVID, but whatever it was. And what you have spoken has come to pass and I will see it. For you've said to me, O Lord God, buy for yourself a field with money and call in witnesses, although the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. And then verse through uh, 42 through 44, it says, For this is what the Lord says, Just as I brought all this disaster on this people, so I'm going to bring on them all the good that I am promising them. The field shall be bought in this land for which you say it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hands of the Babylonians. Men shall buy fields for money, sign and seal deeds and call in witnesses in the land of Benjamin. In the environs of Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the lowland and in the cities of the Negev. For I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. Now, I want to read a quote that John Fowles writes in the Aristos. Um, You probably know him better from the French Lieutenant's Woman, but this is one of the most brilliant quotes from all his writing. It says this, I can stick artificial flowers on this tree that will not flower, or I can create the conditions in which the tree is likely to flower naturally. I may have to wait longer for my real flowers, but they are the only true ones. We live in a world that wants the instant, the immediate. Results have to happen now. But that is not real growth. That is um, not what is intensely practical. It's the real flowers that we're looking for. It's the real fruit that we're looking for. It's stuff that can't be rushed. It comes in the process of time. And the same is true of our spirituality. We want the easy and the instant, but that is not what is real or practical. 
And biblical faith warns us against these siren voices that lead us away from the specifics of our life, the everyday, the ordinary things, the practical dailiness of life. Things like weather and politics and dogs and neighbors and shopping lists and dinner and sick children and face masks. There is no true spirituality, no holiness in life that can be formed outside of the ordinary, everyday, practical things that we face. I want to say that again. No truly spiritual life, holy life, if you like, can be formed outside of the ordinary, everyday, practical details of our lives. Paying the bills and taking out the rubbish. Daily, practical, ordinary. These are the conditions that we live in. And we find in these conditions, it's those conditions that, that fruit and flowers form. Now, we can say quite easily that in the Bible, practical equals biblical. But what is practical? Let's look at Jeremiah's life. He, he was intensely practical man. He was always forming, transforming, if, if, if that's a better word, um, the ideas, the things that God had said into practical everyday ways of expressing it. One of the most practical things he did was to buy this field that we see in chapter 32 of Jeremiah. Um, but when he did it, everybody thought he was being an impractical fool. Now, Jeremiah constantly was in conflict with the people around him because his idea of what was practical and, and real was very different to what had come to be the understanding of what was practical and real for most people in the society. Jeremiah was convinced that, and so am I, absolutely, that the creation that God has formed and made is intensely practical. It's something that works. God created the whole of creation and the way that he set things up was for it to work well. When he'd finished in Genesis, it says, and God looked at it and said, this is good. And he said, when he made man, this is very good. He made creation. He created our environment, our world, to work well, practically. And in that sense, everything mattered. Everything has its place. There, there, there is... Um, what what happens with everything matters. So what happens to to people and oceans and dogs and mountains is important to us. Going back to what we said two weeks ago, um, let me just bring that in here because I think it's important. It's an affront to God when things don't work, when th when people live badly, um, when any person or any part of God's creation is exploited. It, it's a wound to God. What we were talking about two weeks ago is how we live, that word dikaiosune, how we live with, with righteousness and justice in the midst of a broken world. And it's an affront to God, I believe, when, when things do not work well, practically. And Jeremiah's sense of practical uh, was built on the belief that God was the most important reality that we have. That's the thing that we have to deal with. Who God is and how he's created the world and how we best live in it. And 
the assumption is that every person is created for a relationship with God. And if we don't have a relationship with God that is vibrant and energetic and alive, we are living falsely and impractically and less than our best. In chapter 3 of Jeremiah, and I'm not going to read it now, but basically what Jeremiah is saying, what Jeremiah is saying is that to be faithful to God, to live out God's word, to believe God's promise, that is what it means to be practical, to be fully alive in this world. But Jeremiah's pleadings in all this were ignored, and judgment came. So we go back to the history. The Babylonian armies had captivated Jerusalem. They'd taken most of the senior leaders and the king into exile. And for 11 years, they had left behind a group under Zedekiah, that vacillating puppet king. Uh, but they had a measure of freedom. They had the capacity to live the way they wanted. They were politically subject to Baghdad, yes, but could have dealt with just about everything else in, on their own terms. They had basically decent lives. But after several years of restlessness, they make overtures to the Egyptians. They planned to overthrow the Babylonians. Now, heaven knows what they thought the Egyptians would be like as as better overlords than the Babylonians, but they enlist the Egyptians in an alliance. It didn't work. The conspiracy is soon heard of in, in Babylon, and Egypt sees no profit in it, so pulls out, and Judah is left, left uh, the people of Israel hopelessly outclassed, because the Babylonians are brutal when it comes to putting down insurrection. And what approaches is one of the blackest hours in the history of Israel. Um, there's absolutely no hope at all. They're going to be crushed. They're going to be annihilated, basically. Now, all of this time, Jeremiah is in prison. He's been accused of collaboration with the Babylonians. He's an unpopular figure. But prison in those days was slightly different to what we understand it. He, were, he, he had a kind of loose confinement in the palace court. He was openly visible. He could receive visitors. But what Dere Jeremiah did at that time, as highly visible as was, was thought about to be absolutely crazy. He bought a field. When he was buying it, the Babylonians were actually camping on it. Um, he was, as I said, a prisoner, and there was no prospect of him getting out. And the enemy are really positioned all around Jerusalem. So Jeremiah buys a field. A field that he's never going to plant olives or vines on. A field that he's never going to build a house on and probably is not likely to ever see. So why did he do it? Well, he did it for the most practical of reasons. He was convinced that the troubles that everyone was experiencing at that point, at that moment, were not the end of the story. They were part of the continuing story of God showing how he wanted to bring salvation to his people. For Jeremiah, the reality wasn't that the Babylonians were camping on the piece of land on his field that he just bought, although he couldn't deny that fact. He was saying that there is a deeper reality, there is an underlying reality that the... Um, God is that, that God is going to fulfill his promises. He was saying to the people by buying the land, God is 
ready with his next project for Israel. Now, G.K. Chesterton, you can read any of his stuff, it's really all good. He said this, As long as matters are hopeful, hope is just flattery. It's only when everything is hopeless that hope has any strength at all. And in that sense, that's what's happening here. Israel is completely hopeless, but Jeremiah buys a field. And he had preached judgment for years, and now judgment was at hand. The Babylonians were at the door. And he draws attention to why, now he draws attention to why this judgment was um, necessary as far as God's words go. He's preparing his people to receive the promise of salvation. They had been living impractically. They had been living badly because they were living in a way that was outside of what God had designed them to be. And so, when judgment is at hand, what Jeremiah is beginning to say to them is that there is hope. There is more to, um, there is more than meets the eye going on here as far as the Babylonians are concerned. That he's saying to them, God is in your midst. Judgment is here, but don't despair. It's God's judgment. Face it. Deal with it. Um, the situation, the hardship, experience what's going on as discipline. Because God is for you. He's not against you. This whole thing is not about God wounding you in the sense to um, bring you down. He's trying to open you up to the fullness of the salvation that he has for you. And so... Um, God has not rejected you, is what Jeremiah is saying. He's working with you and for you. In chapter 30, verse 7, he says this, And it is time of ja and it is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. Further on in verse 15, it says, Why do you cry over your injury? Your pain is incurable, because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous. I have done all these things to you. And then, Further on in verse 17 at the beginning it says, For I will restore you to health. I will bring you back to health, to healing, to shalom, to peace, to blessing, to the fullness of life is what God is saying. I will heal your wounds, declares the Lord. We know, as Paul writes to the Romans, that if God be for us, who can be against us? And we, the, the, the fundamental underlying thing that Jeremiah is saying by buying this field is that there is hope. God is with you. This is all about returning you to the conditions where flowers and fruit can develop in your life and in your land. Now, essentially for all of us and for Israel at that stage, judgment is not the last word. It's not the end. It's necessary in this sense because of their hard-heartedness over many centuries. And it opens their heart to the reality of what God is doing. In chapter 31, it says, This is what the Lord says, The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. And he goes on to say, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. Again I will build you, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. There's, there's the tenderness, the compassionate um, longings of a father that are expressed in those words. 
So God has been trying to wake Israel up through Jeremiah and, and, and the impending sense of judgment. Now that the judgment is here, he's saying this in itself is not the end. There is more. I want to rebuild you. I want to make you better. I want to help you flower. When Israel was prosperous, she thought that she could manage on her own, be self-contained, self-controlled, self-focused, self-satisfied. And Je Jeremiah had preached judgment on that. Now that the calamity was around the corner, they could believe nothing more than it was a dead and dark place. Nothing can make it better. So even when Jeremiah preaches hope from his prison, as we've just seen, there is no traction for the message because that message of hope is no more believed than the message of judgment that he's been preaching. And for the same reason, they couldn't see it. It wasn't clearly instantly um, manifest and visible to them. And so often we can't see it. And we need to be reminded over and over that God is with us, that God is for us, that God is all the time created the world in such a way that if we live according to the way that he has set things up, we will experience shalom and peace and blessing and life. There will be flowers. There will be fruit. Anyway, back to the field. All this is happening. And we, we saw as we read early on that his cousin Hanamel has come to him and has said to him, you know, I've got this plot of land just outside, it's about three miles outside Jerusalem at Anathoth. Y you can have it. It's all yours if you want it. And um, uh, Jeremiah um, says, uh, okay, and instantly begins to understand that God is in this whole thing. Because in chapter 31, verse 16, uh, and 17 and 16, Jeremiah had said, And there is hope and there is a future, says the Lord. Your children shall return to your own territory. Jeremiah, out of his own words, there has been this hopefulness that he has spoken about. So Hamil, Ham, Hanimal steps up and says, Well, if that's the case, why don't you buy this field? Now, we don't know if he was being serious or whether he was mocking Jeremiah. But what would any practical person do? What would you and I do? We'd say, Are you crazy? Look at the situation. See, see what it looks like at this particular moment. It's dark. There's no way forward. I'm not going to buy your field. It's just throwing money off, good money off the bad. But that's not what happened. Jeremiah that knew that it looked impractical and he knew that it was probably stupid and foolish and crazy as far as other people were concerned. It was against reason, against history, against everything that was normal. But he didn't buy that field on the advice of his broker. He didn't buy it for his retirement. He bought it because God had said and showed him that he should, and that it was going to be a witness to God's promise. He may have felt a bit foolish because he, he in chapter 32, as we read earlier on, he starts to pray in verse 17. He says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth and your great power and your out by your by your great power and your outstretched arm, nothing is too difficult for you. And he goes on in verse 24 to say, The siege mounds have reached the city and given, been given over to the hands of the Babylonians who fight against it because the sword, the famine, and the pestilence have come. Um, and what does 
been spoken is coming to pass. Jeremiah is not unaware of the context. He's not unaware of the situation. But buying the field in Anathoth was a deliberate act of hope. Now, all acts of hope are open to possible, possible ridicule because they are, in essence, forward-looking. They are hopeful. And they may often seem impractical because they don't conform to visible reality. You and I have to constantly remind ourselves that there is more going on in our context on a daily basis than meets the eye. It's true, yes, that the, that, that the whole of reality is not visible. But the way the world works now has become so much like the way Israel was before the Babylonians pitched up. They could only see what was happening on the outside. Now, when Je Jeremiah buys the field, he's expressing in a very practical way what hope looks like. And hope is doing things that are connected with God's promise. Let me say that again. Hope, for us, is doing practical, ordinary, everyday things that are connected with the promises of God. Biblical hope is an act. It's not just wishful thinking. It's not just thinking, oh, something will happen in the future and it'll all be okay. It's acting on the conviction that God will complete the work that he has begun. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is what the prayer is that we are instructed to pray on a daily basis. That is hope. And it's not just words, it's not just feelings, it's not just something that we keep in our head thinking, oh, it might happen. We are called as the people of God to live out that hope and to live practically in the hope that God gives us. Hope is buying into what we actually believe. Hope is actually believing that God created the world in such a way to practically work in all its everyday ways. It's not turning away in despair. It's not running with the crowd and saying and being negative and, and um, complaining about everything. It's easier to do that often because we don't have to do anything. We don't have to risk anything. We don't have to step out in faith in any kind of way. And that, but that for a Christian is lazy living. We may not be able to see it right now, but we hope. We live out God's promises in the way that we act, the way that we live amongst our neighbors and amongst our friends. That day in Jerusalem, amidst the panic of the Babylonians being at the gate, the rush, some people were resigned to it, some were still trying to escape. They were making all kinds of preparations, but they weren't listening to Jeremiah. And it's very much like that now in a, in a situation of pandemic. Where is the hope? And I think what I'm saying is this, that the hope is vested in us, the way we live, the way we act, the way we respond in all of these situations. The one practical act on that day when the Babylonians were at the gate, one act of um, hope that stands out is that Jeremiah bought a field. And what he was saying was, God has a future for us. There is more to, uh, there is more going on here than meets the eye. That act 
was something that made the Word of God visible, the way that God wants to, 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 to order the world visible. It was, um, for us, an expression of kindness and love and neighborliness and care. That's what we looked at last week. It, it is for us as Christians to live with righteousness and justice, like we looked at two weeks ago. Our responsibility is to make the Word of God, the promises of God, visible. That's what hope is. We have to get practical, really practical. And the most practical thing that you and I can do is to listen to God, to hear God's Word, to understand His promises in the way that He set the world up to be, and then to respond accordingly, to act appropriately. Now, those acts are rare, rarely, not really, rarely spectacular. They usually take place in very ordinary set settings, like I described earlier on, bumping into your neighbor, taking the dog for a walk. And they're almost never seen as hugely significant. But let me say it again. The most practical, indeed the practical thing we have to do as followers of Jesus is to listen to God's voice, to read the scriptures, to hear what he has to say to us, to understand his promises, and then to act accordingly. Then we will be bringers of hope.